Greetings, friends, and welcome back, or welcome to the High Flyers Podcast, the community for the curious ones, where we share diverse experiences in life, not just work. Tune in and learn to fly high in your own way, from value creators and problem solvers in all aspects of society. Learn about their sunrise, magic moments, hustle, and so much more to help us all be 1% better every day together. And I'm your host, Vidit Agawal. I think when we got to four shelters was probably when people stopped saying to me, oh, your model's never going to work, you know, why are you doing crisis accommodation? You know, it's silly, you'll never get people to support this. When we had our fourth shelter open, people began to take us seriously. And when we opened that lovely shelter, which is the sanctuary at the hills, the wonderful manager there, who still works with me today, um, rang me and said, uh, we've just taken in our first resident. And she said, it's a 17 year old woman with a six week old baby, and she's just leaving really terrible domestic and family violence. And for me, that was a moment where it kind of was a real full circle moment because this was somebody who could, who could not have been, could not have gotten anywhere else. That's Annabelle Daniel, and this is episode 37. We talk about Annabelle's curious nature growing up despite her parents splitting very early with the roster of ideas and interests she explored. Hear about her passion for social justice and equality and how it originated through some trial and error, her expansive family, being close with her grandparents and our children. We go in depth as Annabelle talks about leaving her secure job to join what was then the NGO startup that she now leads as CEO, helping women and kids feel safe, find shelter and build a life and hear about the role we all as a community can play to support these efforts. Hi Annabelle, thanks for joining me on the show. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Vidit. This is great. I'm really excited. We've got a mutual friend in um, who's recommended you highly, so I'm looking forward to this conversation. Yeah, um, it might be. <laughs> she is, she is. She's a friend of the show for sure. Um, it might be worth just helping the listeners understand a bit about yourself. So would you mind sharing a bit about you and where you are in life today? Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so my name is Annabelle Daniel. Um, work-wise, I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Women's Community Shelters, which is an organisation based in New South Wales that um, primarily works with local communities to establish new crisis accommodation shelters for women and kids um, who are homeless or leaving domestic and family violence. And when I'm not doing that kind of work, I'm a mum of two teenage girls um, and I'm an avid gamer in my spare time. Ah, interesting. I, I didn't know that. So we can, we can definitely touch on that in this conversation. Excellent. <laughs> um, maybe we can zoom out a bit and then go back to sort of your sunrise and your, your early years, Annabelle. Um, what, what was that like? What was growing up, I understand, in Sydney? What was young Annabelle like? Oh, um, young Annabelle was really quite fierce and incredibly interested in the world. Um, my parents split up when I was quite young. I was only five. Um, and I used to overwhelm my mother with questions about the world and everything that was going on. I always wanted to know everything about everything. And my mum has told me, you know, in later years that she said the number of times she had to go and like look up an encyclopedia to, to give an answer <laughs> for some particular question I'd asked. Um, and I also used to talk a lot. She used to say to me, Annabelle, can you just be quiet until the next traffic light? 
um, <laughs> just to get some peace and quiet when I was in the car. Um, when I was six, my little brother came along and, um, and he is one of my best friends and closest people in my life. Um, and, um, and I also had a really close relationship with my mum's parents, my grandparents growing up. They were like surrogate parents, um, as was my other grandmother, my dad's mum. That sounds like quite a um, broad childhood in terms of having that curious nature. Do you think that came from your parents or the environment you were in? Oh, um, I'm not really sure. I think it's just it, it's just kind of the way I, I'm made, I think, and it's something that I have carried forward um, with me throughout my entire life. I consider myself a lifelong learner. I'm always disappearing down rabbit holes about, you know, really um, – really diverse subjects that I have, you know, a really intense interest in for a period of time. You know, when I was, when I was a kid, it was, I wanted, to, I collected seashells, I wanted to be a marine biologist, and then I wanted to be an astronomer, and then I wanted to be a dress designer. I was always had these really intense interests um, for long periods in my life. And I think, you know, I, I, I almost feel sorry that, that, you know, my time on earth is limited because there's so much to learn. <laughs> And so really for me, when the internet came along in my early 20s, it was like a dream come true. It was everything I ever wanted. And as my brother and I say to one another, I can't believe that we can now carry around a, a device in our pockets which gives us access to the entirety of human knowledge at the tap of a finger. It's still miraculous to me and amazing. Yeah, it reminds me of something you'd mentioned when we spoke leading up to this, that education outside of school was as important to you as in school. Absolutely. Um, yeah, I always, yeah, I had, um, you know, I always had, had formal schooling and, and formal education. And, and during my high school years, I was actually at a selective girls' school in, um, in, in Sydney's North Shore. And, and that was a bit of a hot house. And, you know, and I, I had per periods of time where I did okay, but I was never, you know, one of the most stellar students in school. But I was consistently educating myself um, outside of school as well, always. And would you say you had any any heroes or people you looked up to as you were sort of getting through high school and, and becoming a teenager? Did you have any posters on the wall and you said, oh, I want to be like that person one day? Oh, look, I think everybody goes through the want to be a pop star phase, don't yeah. they? You know, my, my wall was, you know, cluttered with pop heroes at the time. Um, I, also, I, I also used to spend a lot of time horse riding as a kid and I developed this really weird bent into, into country music. And so, like, I absolutely adored... Um, like the Eagles and Kenny Rogers and John Denver and, you know, people used to say, oh, my gosh, Annabelle, like where did you get these crazy music tastes from? You know, this is old people's music, but I loved it. Um, and I also learned how to play a lot of it on the guitar, um, which I still do from time to time. But I also had your pretty, you know, classic teenage range of, of hits, you know, and when I was, when I was in my teenage years it was Aha, uh -huh, Duran Duran, um, Fleetwood Mac, Bananarama, you know, absolutely all the, the poppy, dancey stuff I absolutely loved and, and those were the posters that were on my wall alongside, you know, photographs of, of whoever had been at the Olympics for show jumping. Yeah, okay. Yeah, great. Um, and, you, and you mentioned earlier you had a lot of passions through your teenage years and as you were growing up. How did you sort of morph that into figuring out what you want to do say when you were grade 10 and beyond because because mm. a lot of listeners on this show that that are young in their life and, and mm. they might relate to that like was that your parents influence or was it teachers like how did you sort of figure out when you were 16 17 years old what do you want to do in life um 
uh, that's a really interesting question because I was still nowhere near figuring out what I wanted to do at that age. Like, you know, I went through this, this roster of professions that I thought I could have done. Probably about 16, I would have said I thought I was going to be a languages teacher because I really enjoyed French and German at school. Um, but it, a, a really pivotal event was when I met um, the woman who is still my very bestest friend in the world um, in year 11 at school. And she was very passionate about becoming a lawyer. And I just thought she was so fabulous. I thought, oh, well, if she wants to do that, then how about I try and do that too? And um, and so that sort of became my focus or, or getting into law became my focus for, for the end of, of university, uh, sorry, for the end of high school. And as it happened, um, I missed out on getting in with my tertiary entrance rank by one mark um, that first time around. And so when I got to uni, I enrolled in arts, which was politics, philosophy, history, um, which was absolutely fascinating. And then I, I did quite well in those subjects in the first year and then changed up to law the year after that. And I think where I did it at Macquarie Uni and how it was taught then was a really broad exploration into, you know, the history and philosophy of how law comes about. And I found it fascinating and it meshed really well with my other subjects. And from then, I think, you know, drawing on, on some events during my childhood and, and, and during my life and then in my studies, I started to develop this real base passion towards social justice and equality for women and kids. Yeah, and I'd imagine being that law space probably gave you an avenue to understand that um, equality and, and women's rights space as well, right? Because do you think looking back in hindsight – that, that gave you the step to go beyond it? Whereas yeah. if you hadn't gone into law, maybe you wouldn't have seen this world that you're in now? Yeah, I think that's very much the case. And I always say, you know, if I'm talking to younger people about what is a good place to, to end up doing the work that I'm really doing now, I would say that law is actually a, a really good general degree for understanding the way that the world works and how it's structured and how systems work and how you can advocate for yourself and others and how you know, you can navigate the way these pathways are set up if, if you understand how how your country works. Um, and so, you know, for me, it was just, it was incredibly eye-opening to learn all of those things. I picked particular subjects like discrimination in the law and family law, which, you know, really gave me a, a good and in-depth understanding and were very well taught where where I um, studied. And so I think for me, those, those kind of, those those concepts, those issues just really started to, to settle and embed themselves in my DNA and, and laid the groundwork at that point for, for future. And, and if you look at the flip side of that, I know one of the things you mentioned on our call leading up is that perhaps you didn't quite enjoy that law space early on, right? Um, and again, that might be something else that, that I think a lot of listeners resonate with because some oh. people go into it by choice, some people go into <laughs> it for other reasons. Um, can you t- can you touch on that? Like, how did you realize that you didn't like it? Firstly, and then I think the step two is always often harder. It's like, okay, I don't like it. What do I do next? Yeah. Um, what was I that think, period like? I think well, because because I did I I put myself into the wrong kind of law, which was a mistake. Um, when I you know, I, I got to the end of my degree and, and there was very much a sense amongst the, the cohort of, of, of students I went through with that the definition of success, once you had completed a law degree, was to land a graduate position in what was one of the big six law firms then um, in Sydney. And, you know, and so I thought, you know, I'll 
competitive, um, I thought, yeah, you know, I will put my hat in the ring to do that because that's what I think, you know, I should do. I was very, very influenced by the prevailing fear attitude. And I secured a position with one of the, you know, with one of the big law firms. And I started working there when I was 25. And I very quickly realised that I was just a square peg in a round hole. And that while it was, you know, uh, while it felt like a feather in my cap that I had secured that position, it was the wrong kind of law for me to be working on. I didn't enjoy it. Um, I didn't, I didn't, um, I didn't mesh with, um, with the, the firm's culture or the way that, that other people were working there. It just, it, it just didn't seem to make sense to me. And so about nine months later, um, my then partner at the time had two children from a previous relationship and, um, and one of his kids uh, came to live with us. And so those circumstances sort of meshed in such a way that, that it, it gave me an option to step back from that incredibly high-paced world and say, actually, no, this is not what I want to do. Um, my little family is important to me and I'll, I'll figure out next steps. And so I took, I took a job um, doing something I'd done to pay the bills all the way through uni, which was working in a car dealership. Um, I used to I used to spend um, mm. millions of dollars every month ordering cars from um, you know to bring into Australia from from the foreign manufacturers and that was a really fun thing because I was kind of really good at at picking what customers might want and so I you know the place I was working for always had the right stuff on hand to sell people and that that was fun and I did that for a few years while I was figuring out what was going on and 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 how things were going and. And so it took me about another three years. And then as I was approaching 30, I thought, you know what? I've got this great law degree. I've had this wonderful education. It's about time I put it to use. Um, and so I applied for a position with what was then the Child Support Agency, which um, handled the transfer of maintenance between separated parents. So it dealt with um, people's money and their kids. And, um, and I started there. And that was really the launch pad to a whole range of different things which have opened up since then. I love that. It definitely sounds like one of the magic moments that we talk about in the show, which is sort of an asterisk in the journey, right? Then you look back and you're like, I'm sure in hindsight, you're glad you went through that now because it led you to where you are today. Yeah, it absolutely did. And I think, you know, for me, um, I have, I've had... Um, grandparents who've lived incredibly long ages you know one was 100 one was 99 and one was 96 wow and I've just always felt um, myself and my brother that we're part of a family that just takes a long time to grow up you know it feels like our adolescence Mm. just just you know like we both said to one another it just didn't feel like the adult part of our brain really clicked in until we were close to 30 and for me that was certainly the case I didn't feel like a fully formed grown-up until then and yes. so, sorry. <laughs> I was going to say, would you say now in hindsight that that makes sense? But when you were in your late twenties, mm. did you did you feel the way you could get that maturity was through taking on different experiences in life? Because it sounds like back to what you said when you were younger, mm. you were passionate about so many different things, right? And you wanted mm. to explore and sort of poke different things. Do you think that helped you get that maturity? later on in life yeah look I I think it did and I think it just got to the point where I was annoyed with myself and I realized I needed to push myself to make a decision about where to next and and to how how to you know kind of get on the path where I had um enough enough confidence to just to just really flex what I knew um and so 
yeah, that that really was an um, you know an asterisk moment um, and a mm. bit of a turning point when when I joined that organisation. Mm. We, we talk a lot about magic moments in the show, particularly the moments you spoke about, but then also painful learnings or, or experiences that you might have gone through that in the moment were hard or or an experience, but looking mm. back there was a lot of um, benefits from it. Mm. Are there any of those that stand out for you, particularly because I, I think out of all the guests we've had on the show, the work you're doing and also your life journey is quite broad. Mm. Have you had those that, that you look back on and you're like, wow, I'm, I'm so glad now that I, that happened. Mm. It might have been really hard, but now it's really good. Yeah, I think so. And I think, I think part of it, again, probably goes back to my parents' divorce when I was quite young. Um, because I did, you know, shortly afterwards my dad repartnered and my stepmother had two kids from her previous relationship, so I acquired a stepbrother and a stepsister who were part of my family. Um, when, um, you know, when, when I grew up, my, my first partner had two kids from his previous relationship, so I became, you know, a stepmom to those kids. Um, and I've had um, two children of my own, um, you know, when I when I married um, when I married my husband, we had our we had our two girls together. He subsequently, when when we split up, he repartnered. He's got another um, another child as well. So I guess one of the themes throughout my life um, is a really expansive definition of family. You know, it's it's been well and truly outside what um, what you would consider the traditional family model to be. And I do love that. You know, I'm still really close with my first partner's daughters and their family now. You know, I'm, I'm godmother to my um, stepdaughter's son. Um, you know, we still attend um, family events and, and consider each other family. And I think for me, um, love being bigger um, has very much been a feature of, of my growing up. Um, and I think as a consequence, I feel incredibly protective and incredibly supportive of um, women and kids who, who have also had a non-traditional experience. They might have experienced homelessness or domestic and family violence, or, or it might be older women who are, you know, at risk of homelessness. And I think, you know, my, my life experiences outside the, the standard track um, have very much informed a bit of an outsider perspective on that stuff. Mm. And, and and have there been any any learnings there from a given you've been through it yourself? I think a lot of people can relate to that, whether it's family family challenges or just personal challenges, right? That you've were there any learnings there in terms of tricks you found that that's helped you deal deal with it, particularly mentally, because because you're still working and you've still got um, friends and family, but you're dealing with this in a personal sense, and it sounds like you've had you've done it in a very positive way. Mm. Have there been any things there that you've gone, okay, this is what helped me get through it? Was it a certain mindset or was it having the support of friends and family? Mm. Um, are there any kind of tangible things there that you can share? Look, I think, I, and again, I think in, in my early years particularly, it was the love of my grandparents especially that was just so solid and so foundational to both my, you know, my well-being and my success. You know, the, my, my grandfather in particular was a huge role model for me. He always expected... Um, and always encouraged me towards uh, career and achievement. And he used to talk me up and be so proud of everything that I did. Um, and having somebody like that in your life is just, you know, it's unparalleled. You, re- you really only need one. But if you've got one, <laughs> you know, like mm. that, it, it's, it's just incredible. And I guess, I guess for me, I've never been, I've never, because, because I, you know, I was, I was a child of divorce at a time where, there, 
you know, divorce was on the rise, but it wasn't exactly common. You know, I often stood up in school and said, hey, I went to my dad's on the weekend and there was this kind of audible intake of breath from my classmates, like, oh, she's from a divorce family. Um, and I think, again, it's just that, that outsider perspective and kind of busting stereotypes about who, who you can and can't love as part of your family um, has been an attitude that, that I've carried forward with me the whole way, that we can have an expansive definition of what love and family means. And if you talk about the, the people that have been on that journey, whether it's your family and your grandparents, but even people you've met through through the journey, are there any, because um, I think particularly in the space you're in, there's a lot of hard conversations I'd imagine and a lot of mm. self, self-openings where you see a lot of stuff that, that perhaps a lot of us, a lot of us don't. Have there been any any people there that you've met um, that have inspired you or have made you sort of reflect on the way you look at things and go about it? Yeah, look, absolutely. I have always looked for you know for mentors and people who are a few steps down, uh, you know, like ahead of me on their career pathway. But one of the things that's brought me great joy, particularly in the last few years, is I've forged a, a friendship and a, and a collaboration with Anne Summers, who is who was one of the, the very first um, women to uh, set up a women's refuge in Australia, which was Elsie. And that was set up in New South Wales in, in Glebe in 1974. And, you know, we first connected when, when I was managing um, Elsie. And we've sort of, we've, we've drawn closer over the years through our correspondence. And I think, you know, for somebody who is, she, she's an incredible um, icon in the Australian feminist landscape. And it's been you know, really, really useful and encouraging for me to learn from her experiences and um, and and to discuss, uh, you know, current politics, feminist issues, those kinds of things with her. But um, you know, there've there've been a huge number of, of role models for me across my my career, and um, and I'm always looking to learn from other people as well. Mm. Um, if, we, if we touch on your journey to date, whether it's work or life, is there a period of time that, that you look back on that was the most fun or energising? Um, whether it was a six-month or a 12-month period that you go, wow, that was the most fun. I learned so much and I met so many cool people. Is uh, there one that stands out? I love what I do now. Yeah. <laughs> That's what, you know, I, I, I tend to, like I'm very lucky in that I'm the kind of person who was born with the brain chemistry that if I get a good night's sleep I'm optimistic you know I just (laughs) kind of generally have an upbeat outlook on life that's the way I was you know lucky enough to be made and so for me whatever I'm right in the middle of is what's you know exciting fun challenging that kind of thing you know I have up days and I have down days and and everything but I don't think I've ever been more kind of fully involved and engaged in anything than the work that I do right now. You know, it, it has critical importance to people's lives. It saves lives. Um, and and what's more, it's engaging people in solving a whole of society problem. And I think that's some pretty powerful stuff to be working on. It certainly keeps you um, engaged and energised. I also do, like, I absolutely love to travel and see new things Um you know, that's been a little bit <laughs> circumscribed in the mm. last 18 months or so just with the, the pandemic. But, again, you know, it's any environment in which I am immersively learning every minute of the day um, is pretty compelling for me. 
And, and do you do that with your work as well, which obviously we haven't touched on yet, but we will shortly um, around learnings from overseas um, other countries in terms of the work they're doing or um, yeah. whether it even be connecting with NGOs or government bodies. Is there Have there been experiences there where you've been able to sort of reflect from them? Yeah, look, absolutely. And I think the internet's really opened up the channels for that to happen. You know, again, I still I still think of think of it all as, as a bit of a miracle. Um, you know, like I'm very, very active on social media, Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, um, and in particular, Twitter has given me the opportunity to connect with some with sector experts all around the world and, you know, find out what's happening on the ground there because I often find, you know, if you want to find out what's happening first or get somebody you trust's take on something, then Twitter is a go-to place for it. I think it's, you know, it's just brilliant and you can communicate with people unmediated um, by structures or, or organisations. You know, you can forge those personal connections. And so, yes, look, I'm, I'm, I'm an avid watcher, um, particularly uh, in my field of things that happen overseas, um, and, and I'm an avid watcher of, you know, politics and public affairs. Yeah, and, and I think that was the question I had around leadership because when I look at your role and the work that you're doing compared to, I think, the traditional leader, um, it, it's very different. It's not just a position title and a hierarchy. You're actually having impact in the society every day. Um, if, you, if you go back to when you first started in the role you're in now, what, what were some of those moments of self-doubt and, and how did you sort of get around that to go, okay, I'm a leader now and I've got real tangible impact here, but I... I'm still learning. Like I'd, I imagine there'd be a phase there. Mm. Could, you, oh, look, could you share that? Like what was that like? <laughs> yeah, look, I think the first two years were a period of self-doubt, to be honest. <laughs> um, but, you know, for me, it, it was also too, I'd just taken a really big leap. Like I had, you know, when I started this role, I'd, I'd not long before become a single parent myself. Um, I'd just taken over a Sydney, Sydney mortgage on my own. I had quit my long-term public service career, which had nice, assured, you know, 17.5% superannuation and, mm. you know, lots of opportunity and lots of security and, and, you know, it was seen that I could have gone further. And I had the opportunity to either go further or to quit all of that, walk away from it and join a raw startup not-for-profit with no guarantee of success no secured income stream, <laughs> you know, um, and not even a desk and a phone to begin with. <laughs> so it, it was it was really a case of I had to back myself 110% to make it work. And so I was so pleased to join the organisation because I'd had the experience a year before of managing Elsie Women's Refuge and having to turn away people who desperately needed help because there just weren't enough beds. And that experience really let lit the fire in me to join this organisation, Women's Community Shelters, that had a mandate to get out there and create more shelters to provide that accommodation. And I just could not have envisaged, you know, a better values match for, for what I wanted to do and what I felt was meaningful work and what the wonderful board who created the organisation also thought. So, but, you know, that just, just because, you know, you've got a grand vision um, it doesn't always mean it's going to work. Um, and so so really the first couple of years were just me, me working on my own, trying to find local communities who thought that this might be a good idea to set up a shelter, trying to refine what it was I was going to offer them, you know, what we were going to do and give them to make this happen, um, and to, to try and bring it to life. And, it, and 
two years after I started, we did. We we did make it work. You know, I found that first community um, at Hornsby and we opened the Hornsby Women's Shelter um, almost two years exactly after I started. Yeah, it's probably worth spending a bit of time on that hustle in your work now. Um, mm. I think one of the things that I'd be curious is, is how would you describe your current role? Like what are some of your accountabilities and what are some of your mm-hmm. objectives in your role? Because on LinkedIn, obviously, it's a CEO and, and, it's, and people sort of have a perception of that. Yeah. I think your role particularly is a high-impact role. So what does that look like day-to-day, week-to-week? Oh, look, and, and that's a that's a really interesting thing about it because it's I've kind of created it every single day I've worked it. <laughs> um, you know, it started off as one thing, which was essentially being a capacity builder and working with local communities to bring them along on this journey. And now I'm so much more responsible for that, for the broader strategic vision, for the mission, for, you know, for inspiring people to follow what we do and for getting on board. Um, you know, and I'm also responsible for everything down to the nitty gritty of working out line by line what our funding and support agreements might be with a particular shelter or, you know, or working with a key donor who might be wanting to support one of our new or existing projects or it might be, you know, it might be working with my team to figure out what, what a fantastic end of year campaign might look like um, or it could be, you know, doing an on the ground walkthrough in a far flung suburb of Sydney to see whether a property we are being offered might be suitable to help women and kids. Um, You know, my role is incredibly varied, but I think the the most important thing I do is to set the vision for everybody I work with and who comes into our orbit that domestic and family violence and women's homelessness are solvable problems and that if we work together outside traditional sector boundaries and join up community, business, philanthropy, government in in working on these problems, they are fixable. And ultimately, that's my vision. I would love to be out of a job. I would love to um, not have to do what I do. And I think if, if I'm a charity CEO setting that vision, that has to be my ultimate goal. I have to want to do myself out of business. I would love an Australia where domestic and family violence no longer exists. And that needs to be my aim. And I need to be able to communicate that. I wonder if you can share who were who some of the main stakeholders in helping you achieve that? Because, again, we mentioned Brianna earlier. She, she obviously spoke about Food Bank and she spoke about how the stakeholder environment has changed with COVID. Mm. Um, and there's a lot more focus in a, in a good way, but there's also a lot more discussion and she's spending a lot more time on that. How, how's that been for you if you look at it pre-COVID compared to now in terms of mm. influencing the right stakeholders and, and who are the stakeholders to you that you need to get on site to achieve these goals? Mm-hmm. Obviously, the New South Wales government and the federal government are very key stakeholders in this work because this is a, this is a, a, a social problem. Um, and we need to address it. And it actually costs the community and the economy huge amounts of money every year. I mean, there was a there was a report done by um, one of the big accounting and consultancy firms that said domestic and family violence costs the Australian economy upwards of $25 billion per year. And so it's an economic problem that needs to be solved as well as a, a people issue. So governments are key stakeholders in that. Um, I think local communities are key stakeholders in this because so many people have seen the growth in awareness around domestic and family violence and sometimes it can feel overwhelming and like too big a problem for any one person to be able to solve so people just throw up their hands and say, right, well, I I can't do anything about that. 
and I think what what our model is is about taking a very complex social issue, channeling it down to the local level and saying, okay, here's how your business can contribute to this local shelter and make a difference to domestic and family violence. Here's how your school can do it. Here's how your service club, your rotary group, your, your progress club, here's how you can make a difference. So community are key stakeholders. Um, business, uh, you know, are key stakeholders because domestic and family violence can intrude into the workplace. You know, it can affect mm. employee performance. Um, I, I don't see any sector of Australian society that this issue doesn't touch. So I consider everyone a stakeholder in this. Mm. And if we touch on the positives, particularly around your journey from when you started to where to now, have there been any any good wins that you've had that have that have really driven impact in the community that I wonder you can share with the listeners? Because I think the media uh, touches on the bad stuff. Maybe there's some good things yeah. that we don't know about. Oh, look, absolutely. And I think every single one of the origin stories of each of the shelters that we now have, and we have seven open with another two to follow, um, you know, in, in the last in the last six years, they've all been established. And every one of those create, reinforces optimism in me that there are good people in every community that are willing to put their hands, their hearts and their minds into helping others in, in these situations. You know, you really do get to see the best of Australia and the best of communities when you are working to establish these shelters. And I think, you know, when, when I consider, and I think when we got to four shelters was probably when people stopped saying to me, oh, your model's never going to work, you know, why are you doing crisis accommodation, you know, it's silly, you'll never get people to support this. When we had our fourth shelter open, people began to take us seriously. And when we opened that lovely shelter, which is the Sanctuary at the Hills, the wonderful manager there, who still works with me today, um, rang me and said, uh, we've just taken in our first resident. And she said, it's a 17-year-old woman with a six-week-old baby and she's just leaving really terrible domestic and family violence. And for me, that was a moment where it kind of was a real full circle moment because this was somebody who could who could not have been could not have got in anywhere else because a lot of the other places would only take um, would only take people over eighteen if if they had kids and a lot of the places that that took youth or young women wouldn't take anyone who had a baby and so literally this young woman was the most vulnerable of the vulnerable and ours was the place where she could come. And so we helped her build a whole new future. And so those are the kind of moments that, that sometimes I, as, as the work has progressed and as our organisations got bigger, I've felt more and more distant from, but they are the ones that absolutely keep my heart in the game. And I've got a couple of very good managers who will continue to share those stories with me and they always seem to find the right moment as well, just when I'm kind of needing that boost. <laughs> Yeah, very, very impactful. Thanks for sharing that. I wonder, Annabelle, if you could share even the economics of the industry because that's something that, that I personally don't know much about. Um, I mean, every every sector needs financial resources to survive, right? Like how does that work? Is it through private and public donations or is it through government grants? How do um, you most, grow? Yeah, and that's a really interesting thing. Most of the sector up until about six or seven years ago was, was what you would call notionally fully funded by government. And and in that sense that, that most services receive the vast majority of their funding from governments. And, and look, and that still remains true. Um, and 
and I think one of the key challenges with that is is that there's never there's never significant new money from government for these initiatives. There's there's kind of maintenance money, and there was a little bit of extra money through COVID. But um, you know, over the last seven years, Women's Community Shelters, my organisation, has been the only one opening new shelters in New South Wales, um, and really the only one doing so on a social franchise model and with significant philanthropy and corporate investment to do it. Um, and so we're a bit of an outlier in this space, the way that the way that the, the funding works and the fact that we need fundraising, community donations, grants <laughs> um, and, and partnerships to be able to survive. But we know the work is so incredibly necessary because every time we've, um, you know, every time we've opened a shelter, it's been full within a week. So the need is most definitely out there. But generally speaking, um, domestic and family violence services and crisis shelters are on the whole funded by government. Mm. Yeah, I know, I know one of the conversations I often have with my friends is, is particularly in today's world with the pandemic, the government's got so many priorities. Mm. It's about how do you get priorities on the priorities? Mm. Um, mm. Is that something that you spend a lot of time on is, is speaking to government and, and asking them to listen to you and, and share your thoughts? Because I imagine if you look at just the newspaper every morning, right, there's so many different challenges and different aspects of society. Mm. Um, and there's a lot of focus on what's going to drive the election um, result, right? And yeah. there's a certain narrative to that. How do you how do you navigate through that? Um, that's again something some of the guests on the show have come and spoken about that that can work against you or for you. Mm. Um, do you find that's a kind of balancing act as well? Look, yeah, I absolutely do, and I think I think one of the things that that that's really important to me is is sourcing support outside of government grants because it does allow us um, latitude in our advocacy and the things that we determine are the key priorities um, or the needs uh, needs to be met. Look, I always think conversations with government and bringing these issues to them are, are incredibly important. And certainly that's one of the reasons why I also chair the peak body in New South Wales, which is Domestic Violence New South Wales, which is the, the membership organisation and, and peak body for the range of services across the sector um, who do this work. And so, absolutely, engagement with all levels of government is absolutely critical in solving these problems. And I think the conversations that, that we need to have really are around the costs of domestic violence to society. These are, these are things that, that have costs attached. I mean, if you consider a domestic homicide costs the Australian community $2.4 million. And that's with things like um, police and justice costs, you know, the court costs... Um, uh, psychological support and medical support for, you know, relatives, children, um, first responders. Um, it's about the productivity impacts on, on close family that have been extrapolated out. And I could run, you know, I could run a shelter network on two years, for, for two years on that money, um, and I just have to save one life. You know, and that's even putting aside, you know, the value of someone's life. It's It's... These, these kinds of things and, and discussions that we need to have are incredibly important because, because solving these problems will actually assist the economy um, and, and, and the economics of domestic violence, you know, should, should be factored into policymaking. Um, we also need to look at things like having a gender lens on, you know, on policy. For example, during the pandemic, um, the job seeker... Uh, the job seeker allowance, which many single parents are on, or you know, many women with children are on, um, had a boost. And 
a lot of women were able to leave abusive relationships safely for the first time and secure a rental because they had extra money in their pocket. And others, for the first time, might have been able to buy winter clothes that they needed for their kids and not have to choose between that and eating two meals a day for a week instead of three. And so, you know, we need to look at those issues of, um, you know, financial, ha having, having financial resources actually helps to keep women and kids safe. Those are incredibly important policy conversations to have. Mm. And are there any suggestions you have for the listeners today on how we as a community can help the work you're doing? Are there volunteer programs or, or donations that the common public can make to help? Absolutely. And I always say that people can contribute to the work we do with their time, their treasure or their talent, the three T's. Yeah. So there's plenty of scope for, for people to donate their time and volunteer. All of our shelter boards are made up of volunteers and there's plenty of, of volunteers that assist in and around with the work of the shelter, such as helping women and kids move to new homes or, you know, helping source furniture or donations that will assist. Um, you know, Treasure, obviously, um, www.womenscommunityshelters.org.au. We have donation details on the front page and we'd welcome um, financial support and commitment because it's, it's just necessary for us to do what we do. Um, and the third way, of course, is talent. So if you have um, particular skills or expertise that could benefit the group um, that we're working with, you know, like IT pro bono assistance at the local shelter level or you know, or a particular cooking skill that might be great to, to come into the shelter and demonstrate once a week, anything. You know, we've got a really broad range of activities and ways that people can be involved. So there's also details on our website for how to get involved. So I'd encourage people who are interested to have a look there. Fantastic. I definitely will be jumping onto that. Now, before we go into the final sprint, um, I noticed on your name, you've got three three letters next to your name now, O-A-M, yes. which I understand is quite a distinguished honour. Can you, can you touch on that? Like, how did that come about? And and what, what, what change does that make now? Do you have more opportunities to speak? Or is it just a thing next to your name? Like, how does it work? Um, it is a Medal of the Order of Australia. Uh, which I was fortunate enough to receive in 2020. And it comes with the official citation, uh, which is for services to women in social, through social welfare programs. And so it was awarded to me for the work that I have done with local communities to establish new shelters. And it's um, actually quite hard to talk about without getting emotional because it's probably the single um, most significant um, honour I've ever received and it's a source of um, enormous enormous both pride and humblement I think in a way for me because it's a way of Australia saying thank you for making a contribution to the community and there's to me there's no more significant way that your country can can thank you than that um, mm. and so you know, it, if, it, it just gives me the spur to do more, <laughs> really. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and it was a lovely opportunity in December last year to meet the New South Wales Governor and, um, to, and, and other honours recipients at Government House. Um, and I took my partner and my daughter along and my daughter was incredibly impressed with the chocolate-dipped strawberries that they <laughs> Um But, you know, that, that, that's the frivolous side that I'm... I'm I'm deeply honoured and deeply grateful um, to have been a recipient of, of an Order of Australia. 
Yeah, I must say you 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 answer that question very humbly, but it's a massive massive award. Like I, I know very a very basic amount about it, but the people that have received it have done some really special work. So that's a massive achievement, I'd imagine. Um, now, if we go we'll move on to the final sprint, Annabelle, which is just some rapid fire questions to understand some of your habits and behaviors a bit better. Yeah. Um, is there one investment you've made that you consider the best in your life? And it doesn't have to be financial. Oh, um, okay. Twofold. Um, having kids, <laughs> my, my two daughters who are, you know, the, just the most awesome little people and I'm not even biased. They just really are awesome. Yeah. Um, and, and, you know, and obviously that's, that's a significant investment when you're a mum because it's everything from, from your body to, to raising mm. them to, you know, to caring for them. Um, and, and, you know, they're, they're teenagers and they're thinking and they're exploring the world and they're interested in this. Oh, it's just fabulous. You know, wonderful, wonderful investment, kids. Um, and, look, the second thing is um, my, my dear grandmother who passed away about five years ago was kind enough to leave me a little bit of money and I bought a small investment property up in far, far north Queensland that I can visit. And because she was always at me when I was setting up um, the work that I do now, she was like, you need to take a holiday. You need to get away. You un- you know, like you, you're always working. You, you need to take a break. Don't kill yourself. And so I, um, I took her advice and I now get up there uh, regularly a couple of times a year, absent COVID, of course. Um, and it really is my happy place. Like my kids and I walk in the door, we drop our bags and we're home. We're in another home. And so um, so for me, that that has been another really significant um, investment. Amazing. Is there one thing you'd like to learn in the next six months? Oh, um, one thing I'd like to learn. There's like 50 million things I've learned. <laughs> Um, like I'm always, I'm always learning. So I would say there's, there's not one thing, um, but, but I'm very much a believer in providence. And that is, is that, is that things that I need to learn tend to come my way at the right time. So I will just be open to learning what I need to, to take the next step for, for the work that I do. Is there one quote or person that inspires you? Yes, it's an old, well, there's several, but probably the most important one um, that's forefront of mind at at the moment is an old suffragette slogan, and that is deeds, not words. And and I think it's super powerful because what, because, and for me, it's the motivation behind everything that I do, which is that nobody ever leaves a legacy of good intentions. You leave a legacy of the work that you've done. That, that is tangible. And so for me, it's always the focus that doing the things that help people is the most important work. And last one, is there is there one thing you try and do every week to get the best out of yourself mentally and physically? Yeah, play games. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, I just, I tend to, um, if my mind is not working like a million miles an hour, it's breaking something. Um, so I need to keep it occupied. And so the way that I do that is by gaming pretty intensely <laughs> if I'm not actually working. Um, and so I'm always playing like either Pokemon Go or Wizards Unite, which is the Harry Potter version. I just, I love them um, and I enjoy <laughs> it and I can play them wherever I go. And I'm always exploring new places and learning things because of them. 
So, yeah. That's I, I, might, I must say, doing some research leading up to this, I noticed in your Twitter headline or your Twitter title, it did say Pokemon Go. I thought that was a joke, but now I know no. what that means. So. No, random Pokemon Go tweets is not a joke. It's actually very <laughs> serious. I'm sure people get stuff pop, on, pop up in their timeline and go, who is this weird woman? Like, yeah, has she been hacked? But it's, it's and, I, and I think it's, it's really important too because, like, I work in a really serious area mm. and and this stuff is my decompression and my outlet to be completely frivolous and it's absolutely necessary for my sanity. No, love it, love it. Well, that's the finish line, Annabelle. Thank you so much for making the time to come on. Um, I must say, out of all the guests that have come on, I think the work you're doing is really, really special um, and I... I will definitely jump on the website and see how I can get involved. But thank you for coming on and sharing your story and and wish you all the best. Thank you so much. It's been a real pleasure. And thank you for allowing me to share some of my stories so candidly and so safely. That's very much appreciated. I hope you took away some actionable insights and learnings from this conversation to apply to your lives and be 1% better every day. And I look forward to sharing the next episode with you next Tuesday. Stay tuned.